Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Murder Bucket Podcast. It is an absolutely beautiful Tuesday here in Maryland. We have almost 70 degree weather, and I am so thankful for it. And the reason for this is because I absolutely hate being cooped up inside when it's cold. But I also hate being cold. So I want to be snuggled under a blanket and not go anywhere or move. But anyways, tonight you are here to catch another episode in our cult mini-series. And we will be talking about the Rajneesh movement. But first, as always... Let's do our week slash weekend recap. This past week for me has been nothing but craziness at work. I told you several weeks ago that we implemented a new system at our work, and it has just been complete chaos. Not really like running around and like things are going crazy wrong and stuff, but things are slightly going wrong. There are glitches and errors and people getting upset, and it taking a long time to do things, and a lot of us are just so drained and so worn out and so ready for this hurdle to be over of a new system. We want everything to just go back to normal. I was able to end my week with a nice dinner on Friday evening with my husband and my daughter. And then Saturday morning, my husband and several of our friends went to a men's breakfast at our church that lasted close to noon. And then I met my husband at the AT&T store uh, because we had iPhone 11s that we had for about two and a half years and we were able to upgrade So we went there, and because we kept our iPhone 11s in pristine condition, we were able to get the maximum trade-in value for them and actually pay nothing for the new phones that we got and only had to pay the sales tax, which was fantastic. The sales guy actually told us that uh, we were able to lower our bill by several dollars, so that's really nice. And we walked out of there with two iPhone 13 Pro Maxes, which I have to be honest, are gigantic, but I love them. It's okay. It'll be fine. No big deal. Saturday night, two of my very best friends, Lauren and Shelby, came over. We had this planned out to where we were going to watch a couple of movies and do a charcuterie board. 
So we watched Pride and Prejudice, which I had never seen before, and they are absolutely obsessed with. And now I understand why. And then we kind of turned things around and watched My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And our charcuterie board, we had really fancy cheese that I got. We got crackers and bread. Lauren brought meat and different kinds of dips. Then Shelby had fruit and vegetables, and it was just wonderful. We sat around, we talked, we watched the movie. My daughter ran back and forth between us and my husband while he was in our bedroom playing a video game on his PlayStation. And it was just, all in all, a very good, relaxing evening after such a horrible week. Sunday was daylight savings time, which honestly didn't really mess me up as much as the last one did. Um, but we were able to make it to church on time. We had a great service. And then I came home and had to get changed really quick because I was going over to another friend's house uh, to hang out with her and a few other people. And I stayed there and probably until about three o'clock, four o'clock maybe, and then just came back to the house, hung out with my husband and my daughter. We watched a couple of TV shows and they just kind of wind down for the evening until we had to go to bed. And then it turned into Monday. Monday work was something else. It was so bad that I ended up coming home yesterday and sat in my office, which is where I am now, to write the podcast episode, which you are listening to right now. And I had a glass of wine because, you know, a girl just needs it after she has a really bad day. The good thing, though, that happened on Monday is I had a promotion interview. So hopefully I'll hear back from that really soon. And now we've made it to Tuesday. And Tuesday's workday wasn't too bad. I got home. My husband and I and our daughter went out for a walk around our neighborhood, which was about two miles, which was really nice. We brought the big wagon for her, and she walked probably off and on about half of the entire trip and then rode in the wagon for the rest of it, which was really good. And now you are here with me. And I know you want me to stop talking about my own life and get into the cult miniseries, so I'm going to do that. This is the Rajneesh Movement. Chandra Mohan Jain was born on December 11, 1931, in India at his grandparents' house. He lived there until the age of seven when his grandfather died and he wanted to live with his parents. He was greatly affected by his grandfather's death as well as the death of a childhood girlfriend who died from typhoid. This led to the preoccupation with death. This lasted most of his childhood and his youth. As a teenager, he became obsessed with learning about non-traditional religions. This included an interest in methods that would expand consciousness, meaning breath control, yoga, meditation, fasting, the occult, and hypnosis. When he started showing an interest in Marx and Engels, he was branded a communist by his peers and threatened with expulsion from school. At the age of 19, 
He started college at Hitkarini in Jobapur, India. Before he finished, he was asked to leave because of conflicts between him and several instructors. He then transferred to D.N. Jain College. Because he had proved to several administrators and instructors that he was disruptively argumentative, he was asked to not attend classes in person except for exams. He used this free time to work as an assistant editor at a local newspaper. He also began to speak in public at the annual meeting of all faiths that was organized by the Terranpathian Jain community. According to URI.org, Jainism began in India and is one of the oldest religions of the world. Jains do not believe in God, but rather Tirthankaras as guides for their daily lives. Mahavira is the most important figure in Jainism. They believe in rebirth of the soul, which means they believe that when a living being dies, the soul is born into another body. Eventually, Jains hope to break free of the cycle of birth and rebirth and gain salvation. They do this by leading a good life. The conduct of leading a good life is truthfulness, not stealing, not being possessive, nonviolence, and chastity. In 1955, he completed a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and joined the University of Sagar where he earned a Master's in Philosophy. Immediately after graduating, he got a job at Raypur Sunkert College, but was soon asked to seek a transfer by the Vice Chancellor because he was considered a danger to his students' morality, character, and religion. He was then able to secure a job as a lecturer at Jabalpur University in 1958 and was then promoted to professor in 1960. His peers at this new job loved him and believed that he was an exceptionally intelligent man who was able to overcome the deficiencies of his early small-town education. While Chandra was teaching, he would also travel all around India under the name Rajneesh. He acquired this name in his childhood as a nickname. While traveling, he would give lectures critical to socialism, Gandhi, and other institutional religions. During one of his speeches, he stated that socialism was the ultimate result of capitalism and capitalism itself was the revolution that brought about socialism. He then stated that he believed that India becoming a socialist country was inevitable. He believed that the only way for India to become a socialist country was to escape from their so-called backwardness of capitalism, science, modern technology, and birth control. Most people believe that capitalism and socialism were on opposite systems. Rajneesh believed that the only way for a country to talk about socialism was to first build a capitalist economy. In 1962, he began to lead three to ten day meditation camps, and one of the first meditation centers emerged from his teachings. They were known then as the Life Awakening Movement. In 1966, he was asked to resign from his teaching position at the university because of a controversial speaking tour that he did. During a lecture in 1968, he was criticized by Hindu leaders by calling for freer acceptance by calling for freer acceptance of sex and became known as a sex guru in the Indian press. He later published this lecture in a book titled From Sex to Superconsciousness. A snippet of his book says this, 
I want to say to you that sex is godly. The energy of sex is divine energy, godly energy. That is why this energy creates new life. It is the greatest, most mysterious force of all. Drop the antagonism towards sex. If you ever want love to shower your life, renounce this conflict with sex. Accept sex blissfully. Acknowledge its sacredness. Acknowledge its benediction. Go on searching deeper and deeper into it, and you will be amazed that the more you accept sex with a quality of sacredness, the more sacred it will become. And the more you are in conflict with it, as if it were something sinful and dirty, the more sinful and ugly it will become. He was then invited to speak at the Second World Hindu Conference in 1969, even though there were many misgivings from the leaders. During his speech, he said, Any religion which considers life meaningless and full of misery and teaches the hatred of life is not true religion. This caused even more controversy. This is when his movement really took off. In 1971, he initiated six sannyasins and differentiated his sannyas from the traditional practice by stating that his view of renunciation as a process of renouncing ego rather than the concept of rebirth. A year later, he had initiated 3,800 Saiyanisms in India. The total for the rest of the world was 134, which included 56 in the United States, 16 from Britain and Germany, 12 from Italy and the Philippines, 8 in Canada, 4 in Kenya, 2 in Denmark, and 1 from France, the Netherlands, Australia, Greece, Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland. If you're like me and have no clue what a Saiyan is, is, let me tell you the definition according to Google. It says that Saiyan is, is a life of renunciation and the fourth stage within the Hindu system of four life stages known as ashramas, with the first being student, householder, and retired. It is traditionally conceptualized for men or women in late years of their life, but young students have had the choice to skip the householder and retirement stages, renounce worldly and materialistic pursuits, and dedicate their lives to spiritual pursuits. Rajnesh believed that his concept of Saiyans would be a worldwide movement rooted in the affirmation of life, playful, joyful, and based on science rather than belief. It did not rely on ideology and philosophy, but on practices, techniques, and methods that aim to offer every individual the chance to discover and choose their own proper religious path with the intent of leading them to an essential universal religiousness. His goal with this movement was to not create any new religions, but instead create intentional communities around the world where people could practice and achieve spiritual growth. Many communities would tour the world to aid people of spiritual enlightenment and demonstrate techniques of meditation. Other communities would perform call and response chantings as well as conduct experiments and healing. These communities would eventually begin to run their own businesses such as publishing companies. Rajneesh believed that families, large cities, and nations would be replaced by small communities with a communal way of life large communes were planned in the West. 
Several wealthy members within this movement purchased a home for Rajneesh in 1974, and he founded an ashram, which is a spiritual monastery. The number of members then grew very quickly. More people from Western nations began to visit the ashram. This included therapists from the human potential movement. They even started running group therapy sessions at the ashram. Rajneesh's secretary, Sheila Silverman, announced the inception of the religion called Rajneeshism. Wow, that is a hard word to try saying that ten times fast. Anyways, the basis of this movement would consist of fragments taken from various discourses and interviews that Rajneesh did over the years. The Rajneesh Foundation International was then created in 1975. Lewis Carter, who is a sociologist from Washington State University, believes that the motivation for formalizing Rajneesh's teachings might have been tied to a visa application to obtain religious worker status for him. His secretary, Sheila, convinced Rajneesh to then leave India and establish an ashram in the United States in 1981. The Rajneesh organization bought the Big Muddy Ranch near Antelope, Oregon, and renamed it Rancho Rajneesh, and then later Rajneesh Porium. More than 2,000 people took up residence here. Sheila was then appointed as the president of the foundation and managed the commune and met daily with Rajneesh to discuss business matters. Initial local community reactions regarding the new ashram range from hostility to tolerance. Many news reports state that the development met almost immediately with intense local, state, and federal opposition from the government, press, and citizens. Within a year of them being there, they were roped into a series of legal battles with the neighbors, with the principal conflict being the land use. The leaders of Rajneesh Porium were uncompromising and behaved impatiently. In May of 1982, the residents of the ashram voted to incorporate it as a city. This made the conflict with everyone around them escalate. This is when a private nonprofit organization called A Thousand Friends of Oregon was established. Their main focus is advocating for land use planning. They were able to get legal action to avoid the incorporation and cause buildings and improvements to be removed. They publicly called for the city to be dismantled. It was stated that if they were able to win in court, then the ashram would be forced to remove their sewer system and tear down the majority of their buildings. The Oregon legislator passed many bills that sought to either slow or stop the development of the city. The governor of Oregon at the time, Vic Ayi, made this public statement in 1982. Since our neighbors don't like them, they should leave. In May of the same year, United States Senator Mark Hatfield called the United States Immigration and Naturalization Services to come. The senator told them that he was very concerned about how this religious cult was endangering the way of life for a small agricultural town and that they were a threat to public safety. The Oregon Attorney General then filed a lawsuit seeking to declare the city void because of a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution. 
the court ended up disregarding the U.S. constitutional case. Of course, Rajneesh remained behind the scenes while the various legal battles were going on. He had already withdrawn from public before this during a time his followers called a time of silence. According to several websites, he lived in a trailer next to a covered swimming pool and other amenities in the ashram. While in so-called seclusion, he collected many high-end vehicles, including Rolls Royces, and ended up with well over 90 in his collection. In 1983, Sheila announced to all the followers that Rajneesh would only speak with her and she would relay any messages to them. This left many people doubting if what she said, he said, was actually the truth. This is when things began to fall apart in Oregon. After Rajneesh was denied building permits for the ashram, leadership decided to try and gain political control over the rest of the county by influencing the November 1984 county election. The goal was for two of the three seats on the Wasco County Commission to be held by someone within the ashram. One attempt at this was a program that they called Share a Home, where they transported thousands of homeless people to the ashram and attempted to register them to vote. The clerk of Wasco County countered this attempt by enforcing a regulation that required all new voters to submit their qualifications when registering. They then attempted to sicken and incapacitate voters in the area to sway the election. The main planners of this attack included Sheila Silverman, Rajneesh's chief lieutenant, and Diane Onog, who was a nurse practitioner. They purchased salmonella bacteria from a medical supply company in Seattle, Washington, and then cultured it in labs within the ashram. They were going to poison produce intended for salad bars at restaurants around the area. They ended up boycotting the election altogether when they learned that the people brought in from the Share a Home program would not be allowed to vote. When two people from the Wasco County Commissioner's Office were visiting the ashram, on August 29, 1984, their water glasses were contaminated with salmonella. Both men fell ill and one was even hospitalized. After this very small attack, the team then spread salmonella on produce in grocery stores, on doorknobs, and urinal handles within the county courthouse. According to them, this did not produce the effect that they were after. So, in September and October, they contaminated the salad bars of 10 local restaurants with salmonella. This ended up infecting 751 people. 45 of those people had to receive hospital treatment. Thankfully, no one died. Of course, the local residents suspected Rajneesh followers were behind this, so they ended up turning out in droves on election day to ensure that none of them won any seats. The Rajneesh followers ended up withdrawing their candidates from the ballot. The local outbreak of salmonella ended up costing the restaurants thousands of dollars, and most of them had to have their salad bars shut down by health officials. Many of the residents in the area feared that they would attempt this again and stopped going out. Officials and investigators from several state and federal agencies came to Oregon to investigate the outbreak. According to Michael Skeels, 
the director of Oregon State Public Health Laboratory, this was the largest food-related outbreak in the United States at the time. They discovered that workers preparing food at the affected restaurants had also fallen ill before most of the patrons. Oregon Congressman James Weaver gave a speech on February 28, 1985, at the United States House of Representatives, in which he accused Rajneesh and his followers of contaminating salad bar ingredients in eight restaurants. Four months after his speech, Rajneesh came out of his four-year period of public silence to give his own speech. He stated that Sheila and her own team committed a number of serious crimes and went on to call them a game of fascists. He claimed that they even tried to poison his own doctor and his female companion. He invited state and federal law enforcement officials to visit the ranch for further investigations. A task force was then established that included the Wasco County Sheriff's Office, the Oregon State Police, the FBI, the INS, and the National Guard. They were able to obtain search warrants and subpoenas. So on October 2nd, 1985, 50 investigators showed up at the ranch. They almost immediately found glass vials that contained salmonella in the lab of the medical clinic. It was confirmed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that this was an exact match to the salmonella found in the people who were sick. They also found what they called a bacteriological freezer dryer for large-scale production. A copy of the Anarchist Cookbook was also located. It was believed that similar attacks have been carried out in Salem, Portland, and other cities in Oregon. Law enforcement discovered that there had been an aborted plot to murder Charles Turner, who was a former United States attorney for Oregon. David Knapp, who was the quote-unquote mayor of the ashram, gave his own account of his knowledge of the Salmonella attack. He claimed that Sheila had discussed this plot with Rajneesh in order to decrease voter turnout. Sheila then came to him and stated that Rajneesh told her that it was best not to hurt people, but if a few died, to not worry about it. During the investigation, an invoice from the American-type culture collection of microbes showed an order received by the ashram lab, a salmonella typhi. This is the bacteria that causes the life-threatening illness of typhoid fever. Rajneesh then immediately attempted to flee by getting on a plane on October 27, 1985, but was soon arrested when he landed in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was charged with 35 counts of deliberate violations of immigration laws. As part of the plea deal, he pleaded guilty to two counts of making false statements to immigration officials. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and was fined $400,000. He was then deported back to India and barred from returning to the United States for five years. He was never prosecuted for crimes related to the Salmonella attacks. Sheila and Pooja were arrested in West Germany on October 28, 1985. They were extradited back to the United States and reached Portland on October 6, 1986. 
They were then charged with attempted murder to Rajneesh's personal physician, first-degree assault for poisoning Judge William Hulse, second-degree assault for poisoning Commissioner Raymond Matthews, and product tampering for the poisoning at the restaurants, as well as wiretapping and immigration offenses. Sheila received 20 years for the attempted murder, 20 years for the first-degree assault, 10 years for the second-degree assault, four and a half years for her role in the Salmonella attacks, four and a half years for wiretapping, and five years probation for immigration fraud. Pooja received 15 years for the attempted murder, 15 years for the first-degree assault, seven and a half years for the second-degree assault, four and a half years for her role in the Salmonella attack, and three years for wiretapping. She was not charged for the immigration fraud. Both women were released early for good behavior after only serving 29 months of their sentences. Sheila had her green card revoked and she moved to Switzerland. She now runs two nursing homes. I'm sorry, if I knew that Sheila Silverman ran the nursing home where my loved one was, I would immediately take them out and move them somewhere else. When Rajneesh returned to India, he was given a hero's welcome by his Indian disciples and denounced the United States. After traveling around for some time, being refused to land in some areas, having his visas revoked in others, he was finally granted a Uruguayan identity card and one-year provisional residency. He gained a following there, and they ended up moving to a house where Rajneesh began speaking publicly until he was asked to leave. He was able to then arrange for a two-week visa for Jamaica, but after only being there for 12 hours, he was forced to leave. Rajneesh then returned to India on July 30th of 1986. In 1987, he returned to the ashram in Pune and began holding evening discourses until that was interrupted by his intermediate health issues. He expressed that his deteriorating health was due to being poisoned by U.S. authorities while he was in prison. U.S. Attorney Charles Hunter stated that this was in fact false, while many others believed that Rajneesh might have been exposed to HIV or had chronic diabetes. Those are two very different diseases slash illnesses. I'm not sure how they got from possibly being exposed to HIV or having diabetes, but I guess that is beside the point. In February of 1989, Rajneesh told his followers that he no longer wanted to be referred to as Rajneesh, but rather Osho. He also requested that all trademarks be rebranded to Osho. His health declined even further. Osho's last public speech was in April of 1989. After that, he would meet with followers but would just sit in silence. On January 19, 1990, Osho died at the age of 59 at the ashram in Pune, India. The official cause of death was declared as heart failure, but a statement that was released by his followers 
stated that living in the body had become a hell after the alleged poisoning in the U.S. prison. His body was cremated and his ashes were placed in his newly built bedroom in his ashram. The plaque on his burial place reads, Never born, never died. Only visited the planet Earth between December 11, 1931 and January 19, 1990. In 2005, after decades of controversy, Osho's movement had established itself in the market of new religions. Followers redefined his contributions, reframed central elements of his teachings so that it made them less controversial to outsiders. Communities in North America and Western Europe did the same, but only about halfway. They became more accommodating to spiritual topics such as yoga and meditation. The Osho International Meditation Resort teaches a variety of spiritual techniques from a broad range of traditions. It promotes itself as a spiritual oasis, a sacred space for discovering one's self and uniting the desires of body and mind in a beautiful resort environment. In 2011, a national seminar on Osho's teachings was inaugurated at the Department of Philosophy at the College for Women in Jalpapur. As of 2013, the resort required all guests to be tested for HIV and AIDS at its Welcome Center on arrival. Now let's talk quickly about some notable people that have been associated with the Rajneesh movement. Elfie Donnelly, an Anglo-Austrian children's book author, joined the movement in the 1980s and was among the disciples Rajneesh appointed to the inner circle, which meant the group entrusted with the administrating his estate after his death. Tim Guest, who is a journalist and author, grew up in the movement with the name Yogesh and later wrote a critical book titled My Life in Orange about his difficult childhood within the movement. Margaret Anand, a teacher of Tantra, she was a student of Rajneesh and first began to teach Tantra at his ashrams. Mike Edwards was a British former member of the Electric Like Orchestra. Nina, who is a German singer and actress, she states in 2009 she became a fan of Rajneesh, his books, and meditation techniques, which she had discovered several years earlier. And finally, Ariana Huffington, a Greek-American political activist. Her and her then-partner, Bernard Levin, were disciples in the early 1980s. They later joined the movement of spiritual inner awareness. And finally, here are a few places where the Rajneesh movement comes up in pop culture. In 1987, Jeremiah Films produced a film titled Fear is the Master. In 2002, Forensic Files Season 7, Episode 8 takes a look into how forensics was used to determine the cause of the bio-attack in 1984. In 2010, a Swiss documentary was released titled Guru, Hagron, His Secretary, and His Bodyguard. In 2012, the Oregon Public Broadcasting produced the documentary titled Rajneesh Porium, which aired on November 19th. In 2016, an Indian-made biographical movie called Rebellious Flower 
talks about Rajneesh's early life that was based upon his own recollections and of those of people who knew him. It was written and produced by Yogdish Bharti and directed by Krishan Huda. And finally, in 2018, a documentary on Netflix called Wild Wild Country is a series on Rajneesh that focuses on Rajneesh Porium and the controversy surrounding it. I hope you have enjoyed this information regarding the Rajneesh movement. There are only two more cults left in our cult miniseries, and I hope you have enjoyed all of them so far. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at Crime Lapse, a true crime podcast. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. I am Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research, and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some? Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.